Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, committed to research that improves health, reduces recovery times, and brings new treatments and therapies to our area before they are available elsewhere. More information is at pinnaclehealth.org. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. The white supremacist rally and violence in Charlottesville, Virginia last weekend, the issues it raises about racism and race relations in this country, and remarks by President Trump on Tuesday that blame counter-protesters as much as neo-Nazis, Ku Klux Klan members, and white supremacists is the focus of today's program. Up front, President Trump originally blamed both sides for violence in Saturday's rally in Charlottesville then read a prepared statement Monday specifically denouncing Nazis and Klan members, but then backtracked on Tuesday. What about the alt-left that came charging at the, as you say, the alt-right? Do they have any semblance of guilt? Wait a minute, I'm not finished. I'm not finished, fake news. You, you had a group on one side that was bad, and you had a group on the other side that was also very violent. And you know it if you were honest reporters, which in many cases you're not. But many of those people were there to protest the taking down of the statue of Robert E. Lee. So this week it's Robert E. Lee. I notice that Stonewall Jackson's coming down. I wonder, is it George Washington next week? And is it Thomas Jefferson the week after? Democrats and Republicans criticized the president's remarks, with most saying Trump couldn't morally compare the white supremacist and counter-protesters. So WICF's Katie Meyer, our Capitol Bureau chief, checked with uh, area congressmen, the congressmen that are representing uh, central Pennsylvania and our U.S. senators, to see what they had to say about the violence in Charlottesville and also about the president's remarks. Katie, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. So you not only, and by the way, I'm just going to point this out, that uh, uh, if you're interested in hearing what all the members of Congress or most of the members of Congress in Pennsylvania had to say, go to our website, WITF.org, because Katie uh, was able to compile uh, re- some of the responses from uh, most of the Congress people. All but in, one. All but one. Who was the one? Uh, Tom Marino. Okay. And he hasn't tweeted, I saw in he his story? No, he hasn't tweeted anything. He hasn't uh, put out an official statement. And when I called his office, they said he didn't have a statement. But I, like since June, he hasn't tweeted Yeah, he any. hasn't tweeted in a while. Okay. He's not a big tweeter. All right. <laughs> Apparently not. So I don't like the president. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about uh, some of the responses. Uh, and, you know, we have, because of the way the the congressional boundaries are drawn up, we do have a number up to five or six that reach into our listening area mm-hmm. uh, here in uh, WITF's listening area. So what are, uh, give us a, a sample of some of the things that uh, a few members of Congress had to say. Yeah, so you actually, I mean, if you look at this area, you get a pretty good cross-section. Um, I think the most, you know, outright condemnation came from Representative Charlie Dent, who's known to be a moderate. Um, Republican. Republican, yes. Um, He uh, criticized Trump specifically. He said, you know, Mr. President, like, don't make false equivalencies. And that was via tweet that he said that. And uh, so he was the only one who, like, specifically brought Trump's name into it and said, I do not like what the president has said. You had more um, tacit disapproval from others. um, And Lloyd Smucker was one of them. He uh, said that there's no two sides to this argument um, or that there wasn't that the neo-Nazis weren't potentially good people or the people in that group weren't. So the he president was, said there were fine people on both yes, sides. Yes, so he yeah. didn't necessarily say, I don't like what Donald Trump has said, but he did respond specifically to with the president's comments. Now, on the other side of things, um, you had uh, Scott Perry, another congressman from around here, who um, did take Trump's line on this. He, I mean, he, he condemned you know, fascism and 
hate groups and racism. But he also did say, and I'll read this. Um, first, he said this didn't happen in a vacuum, um, that this, these things have been sort of, you know, piling up for a while. And he said, uh, we can't let our national discourse fall into the trap of picking sides. So um, that was, it seemed to be along the lines of where the president was on that. And then uh, Lou Barletta, another congressman who's actually running for Bob Casey's seat in the Senate, or is rumored Rumor to be too, yeah. seriously considering a run. Right. Yeah, can't get ahead of ourselves. He also took a similar line on that. Um, he wrote that... Um, in his official statement, which he didn't post, by the way, online, he I had to call his office for this. But he said groups fueled by violence and a false repugnant sense of uh, racial supremacy have no place in American society. And that includes white supremacists, neo-Nazis, anti-fascists and other fringe groups. And so he included anti-fascists in that group. Those are the left leaning people that Trump also criticized. So, uh, you know, that's another example of him taking the a slightly different position to what many have taken on this. And if, if he's referring to Antifa. Antifa, yes. Right. Anti-fascists refer to Antifa, which is a known to be violent left-leaning group. Right, right. Yeah. In fact, NPR uh, did a profile on Antifa th- this morning. And, uh, you know, some of the, the violent protests at uh, Berkeley, University of California, yes. Berkeley, Portland, Oregon, in, in recent months that Antifa was in, involved in. If the president would have said Antifa by name, I think that, you know, there may, may have been some people say, oh, okay, I know what you're talking about. He may have brought them up, but yeah, you're right. I think um, people do see Antifa and they, rec- you know, they associate that with violence correctly because they have participated in many violent protests. Um, but I think, you know, where we get into this, like, you know, we should we equivocate this is you can see it in Barletta's statement actually he says they're motivated by a sense of racial supremacy and he listed Antifa in there and it's debatable whether Antifa is in fact you know motivated by a sense of racial supremacy they're an anti-fascist group so um you know that's where you get into you know these you know, semantics of how you're making these statements and who you're defending and who you're condemning and little things like that have been extremely divisive as people have taken in these statements from various elected representatives. What about Pennsylvania's two U.S. senators? So um, different responses from them. Bob Casey uh, has been tweeting a lot throughout um, this whole, you know, debacle, I guess, if that's the correct word. Um, And he is, you know, wholeheartedly, as many Democrats have, wholeheartedly condemned white supremacy, condemned Donald Trump for his statements. So very easy to tell where Bob Casey stands to me. Um, as he is, usually is, he's been a little bit more reticent. He's not a huge tweeter. So early on, he did tweet like, you know, we don't accept racial supremacy, um, white supremacy at all. And then later on, he did release a statement um, which appeared to um, respond to the president and uh, basically saying we can't equivocate between white supremacists and their opponents. So that was where he ended up coming out. But he didn't uh, release that statement until a little bit later. Mm. So, Katie, why is it important that we hear from uh, these these members of Congress that are representing our area? Well, I think um, a lot of people have uh, sort of, we've gotten comments actually on Facebook saying, does this matter? Like, do we really need to know what every single congressman says about these comments that Donald Trump made or about, you know, these events of this past weekend? And, I mean, it is interesting to see where they fall down on this because I, I think it's very easy to say, you know, white supremacy is bad. White supremacists are in a specific category of bad. And, you know, have that be the end of it, you know. But we have seen this equivocating sort of coming into the dialogue. And I think that's what people are a little bit confused and worried about because, uh, you know, it's difficult to know, like, why we would be equivocating this. And I'm not going to put my own, I mean... So I think that's why people want to hear about this. I think that's why people think it's important to hear about this, because they want to know exactly where these people, you know, fall down on what has apparently become an important issue, fascism. Well, you know, I, 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 you know, we had John Mysick and you and John Mysick from Penn Live were on the program earlier this week. Mm. Uh, John has a column today, and he's not the uh, the first person to, to use this analogy as a sports analogy that, uh, you know, to denounce Nazism and racism is a layup, mm-hmm. that it's about the easiest thing a politician can do. And that's why I get the sense that sometimes uh, that people want to know 
you know, what what's going on, wh- what the congressmen have to say. Now, people like Lou Barletta, congresspeople like Lou Barletta, are in a unique position. Lou Barletta was one of the first members of Congress to come out in support of Donald Trump's candidacy for president. Uh, he supposedly was considered for a cabinet post, may be considered for another cabinet post in the future. But if he would criticize the president outright... He probably wouldn't be, or at well, least yeah, would be less likely. I wouldn't want to be. speculate on what Lou Barletta's motivations are for right, doing right, this. Right, I don't think but he's out saying, for a cabinet post right now. But it now. does put him in a unique position. And I think what's worth noting on this is that there's a lot of resentment, especially on the right, among Republicans, of the media attempting to tell them what to say. You know, the media comes up with the perfect response, and if you don't meet that response, you're in trouble. And I, I think that's what we saw maybe with, I mean, I don't want to get too much into analysis of this because I don't know, but I think that may be what we saw with Donald Trump, maybe what we're seeing with some of these other Republican congressmen that, uh, you know, they, they don't like the idea of like, you know, there's a pre-subscribed response that they have to make and the media is going to be mad no matter what they say. That's the line that we heard from Donald Trump several times over the course of his statement that he made the other day. Uh, so, I mean... You know, I don't know how much a lot of, you know, the base, Donald Trump's base, the people who support him anyway, are going to care about this. I tend to think not very much. Mm-hmm. But Katie Meyer is WITF's Capitol Bureau Chief. Katie, thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, yesterday, uh, our producer, Smart Talk producer, uh, Richard Copeland, went to Lancaster. There was a silent protest in Lancaster yesterday outside uh, Congressman Lloyd Smucker's office. And uh, this had to do with uh, the congressman's endorsement of President Trump and uh, his response, the president's response to uh, what happened in Charlottesville and also what, what the president said on Tuesday. Here are a few of the comments that uh, Rich got. At its core, it's to help people who feel that they're disenfranchised or feel that they don't have a voice in government, local or national, uh, to have that voice again, uh, maybe for the first time in their lives. I think the difference between the two is that we are trying to make it more inclusive. Uh, I feel like a lot of folks on the right had a very valid point uh, that they weren't being listened to. But I think at the same time, uh, Lancaster stands up, unlike, let's say, uh, the Tea Party when it started gaining traction. Um, it's more focused on making sure that it's not just one particular set of people who are getting a voice. Uh, We're not doing this because we're angry. We're doing this because we see a flaw in the system now uh, where unless you are tied in with large donors, unless you're part of the organization of government as it stands, uh, you don't get a voice. And we don't think that's fair and we don't think that's very American. So we're bringing in these voices, we're listening to our communities, and we're making sure that their needs and their concerns and their fears are heard not only by us, but by the people who can make real change, um, which of course has always been the people of America anyway. It just seems that we've forgotten that. Why a silent protest? A silent protest simply because we feel like our voices aren't being heard right now anyway. Uh, And for each one of the people you see here, there are thousands in this community who are not being heard at all. It's silent because we think it's powerful to be silent. It's silent because there's enough noise as it is already now. I'm here because I have biracial children and I'm fearful for their safety uh, because Trump will not denounce Nazism. Um, He's, I think since his election, he's brought a lot more people out that are just hateful and violent. And I don't feel that our leader of our nation should take that stance at all. I think he should denounce it altogether. The very basic thing here is to speak out and denounce, uh, to rescind your endorsement of Donald Trump. The President of the United States, the highest office in the land, is uh, an apologist now for white supremacy. To not speak out unequivocally to hedge in a moment like this, to talk about two sides when we're talking about organized white supremacists who are organized around an agenda to dehumanize other people. And we saw the violence that, uh, that, that, that I, when you foment that kind of prejudice and organize around it, we see the violence that it leads to. 
That was uh, from the streets of Lancaster yesterday, where there was a silent protest outside the office of Congressman Lloyd Smucker, as you heard just a few minutes ago from uh, Katie Meyer, that uh, Congressman Smucker uh, had a response uh, denouncing uh, the neo-Nazis on uh, Saturday. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, bringing quality care to your community through Harrisburg, Community General Osteopathic, and West Shore Hospitals. More information on our locations is available at pinnaclehealth.org. Emily Previty is WITF's Keystone Crossroads reporter. Uh, Keystone Crossroads, of course, is the project that WITF is involved with uh, several public media companies across the state looking at the challenges uh, facing Pennsylvania cities. She explored York County's racial past in a recent series of reports. And on Keystone Crossroads Grapple podcast, Emily joins us this morning. Emily, welcome to the program. Thanks, Scott. Good morning. This was, there was an event that... uh, Started, it was the day after the election. I'll let you tell the story, but uh, I'll I'll ask the question broadly. How did you uh, start this series? So So the idea behind Grapple is to examine a relatively universal community issue through the lens, um, at least at the outset, of one place. And we chose York County for a couple of reasons, Um, multiple uh, things happening around the time of the election indicating uh, racial tensions there as with uh, other places around around the country and um, also it's it's history that has been pretty extreme at times um, and so the things that happened leading up to the election um, for people who might forget or, or weren't you know didn't realize it um, the former mayor of West York Charles Wasco posted some really offensive um, Facebook content, he was forced to resign. Uh, another elected official at uh, Spring Grove Area School District um, similarly had some offensive tweets. Um, he came after a local pastor who had put something on the marquee outside of his church, which was wishing our Muslim neighbors a blessed Ramadan. He came after him for that. He's still in office. So those things happened. And then um, the day after the election, there was um, an incident at York County um, School of Technology. Basically, uh, there was a video that went viral of two students who were walking through a crowded hallway carrying Trump signs. And from the edge of the frame, you hear another student say, white power. And later, I interviewed students um, who are Hispanic, African-American, Asian, and they had really different things to say as far as their experiences with racial tension um, as it existed at York Tech generally and elsewhere in the community. But All of them said that day after the election, the students who were white Trump supporters basically were celebrating his victory in a way they described as aggressive, with some even saying things like, you know, to one young woman who's Hispanic, that Trump's going to build a wall and deport you. I mean, some really um, offensive things. And so a lot of kids um, called their their parents um, and went home because they didn't feel safe. And there was related picketing outside of the school. There was a lot of media coverage. So that was sort of the reason just because this was a place where people probably had a sense of what had been happening recently in that area because this was national, international media attention that was paid to some of these <clears throat> incidents. And then there's the history there of fatal race riots in 1969, which resulted in decades later criminal charges against multiple people, including the person who was mayor um, at the time. And that trial, again, was something that got a lot of coverage and attention. So we figured there's a lot there that we can explore to sort of highlight these issues as they exist in in most other places. Well, let's get back to York Tech, which, uh, as you just described, was uh, one of of the incidents, if you will, that kind of spawned this. you say that the, the, a lot of the students, minority students, didn't feel comfortable, didn't feel safe the day after the election. What about the days leading up to the election? I mean, uh, an every day, uh, just a, a normal day at York Tech, did they feel safe? So some, I don't, no one described feeling unsafe. Some students said it was shocking that that 
happened. Um, others, and there were, this was a more prevailing sentiment, weren't because they said that whatever underlying um, racial tension there was prior to um, the start of the uh, presidential campaign, it was something that was kind of building. That's what they were perceiving and feeling. But what about, okay, now I talked about before, what about that, let's go to the two days after the election? I mean, did it get back to normal after that? They said it it got back to normal, well, normal, you right. know, re- relatively quickly, but uh, for some that, they, yeah, I mean, it wasn't a prolonged state of feeling unsafe um, necessarily. I mean, people came back to school within a day or two. Um, some people stayed out for the rest of that week. But they said it was, by the time I spoke with them, things in their mind were basically back to normal. Um, but for many of them, normal means they don't feel welcomed or, or comfortable around their white classmates. I mean, so if that's normal, then sure. But um, and it was the it's not like around. it disappeared. The other way around, we have, uh, you, you talked to a few teachers at yes. New York Tech. Uh, there are two that we're going to hear from, from the Grapple podcast. Who are, who are these two? So this is Joanne Prettyman and Jennifer Smith. Okay. And they're talking about, you know, some of the mistrust that uh, was out there or is out there. For years, honestly, in social studies, we've had really open conversations about... Mm-hmm. Oh, all the time. All the time. Real-life scenarios. I mean, kids will admit, before I came to tech, I was really afraid of mm-hmm. kids that lived in the country. I thought they were all racist, and they this, they that. And then the country kids. Well, I, you know, I was really afraid of kids in the city and going in the city. And then, you know, it's interesting. They, they become friends. They make this real friendship. Like, that's the real stuff. When you see kids really, truly learning about each other's experiences and where they come from and, and understanding. That's been going on for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And honestly, talking about it and talking mm-hmm. about how, you know, they are agents of change. Like, I mm-hmm. will even talk about KKK activity where I grew up when I was a kid mm-hmm. versus now and how they are the ones that are going to make the final change. So those conversations have been happening for a really long time. Oh, yeah. I, I don't want to sit back and, and say, oh, we had this lackadaisical, non-empathetic student yeah. body that wanted to do nothing, and then all of a sudden Donald Trump became president, and two kids carried a sign, and someone said a racial slur, and now we do things. No, that's false. I, I think that's a good description of the kind of mistrust that a lot of students, you know, what they had in their mind before they actually got to the school. Yeah, sure. And... The students I talked to were pretty, they were in agreement that they felt that their time where was time at York Tech's been well spent, that it wasn't a terrible place. It's just that this exists. Mm. So let's move on to the other incidents that you talked about, uh, North York and uh, Spring Grove. The New York, New York, North York situation got uh, uh, more attention than the Spring Grove. What happened with uh, the former mayor, Charles Wasco? So... The former mayor, as we said, posted some really offensive Facebook content. And Racially offensive. Yes. Um, and that was first publicized as far as a news report in um, September of 2016. But when you went back and looked at his posts, which were pu- public, I mean, they weren't locked down or anything like that. Um, it, they went back months prior to um, that. And so he initially did not... Well, I don't think he ever apologized, but he didn't step down right away. He eventually did uh, make calls for him to resign by all of his colleagues on council and people from higher office, including the governor. But he actually doubled down on on those beliefs. Yeah. When you say that he didn't apologize, he actually said, hey, this is what I believe. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not changing my mind. If I remember correctly, it was... Uh, uh, cartoons in, portraying former President Obama in, in ways that were offensive to many people. You mentioned York County and York's uh, racial history. The 1960s were uh, a time that many Yorkers would like to forget and are, are not proud of. Uh, in 1969, July 1969, uh, they were called the York race riots, but uh, there was actually a police officer killed and uh, an African-American woman killed the next night. Uh, and, you know, as you, as you said, this was something that came up years later, just about 10 years ago, actually, maybe just a 
maybe 15, 15. yeah, that, that came up again where it took that long for criminal charges to be brought. That's right. And, um, you know, I mean, the the mayor at the time, uh, Charles Robertson, he had lived, he was a police officer back in the 60s and, you know, admitted that he had, that he had said white power and kind of incited the crowd at at a rally in, in the park prior to, you know, the shooting, um, the shooting death of Lily Bell Allen, who was the young black woman um, who, who was killed during the riots. And he had also been accused of supplying firearms to some members of a white street gang called the, the Newberry Street Boys. Or the Newberry Boys? Um, no, Newberry, Newberry Street, street Boys, Boys yeah. 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 And um, he, you know, denied that. And he was ultimately acquitted, but he retreated from public life after that. Still lives in York, in the house that he grew up in. Um, but, yeah. As you're looking into this, uh, into this the, this history, and, uh, you know, th- th- there were there were places like York throughout this country where there were racial tensions, where there were riots, where there was unrest, right. where uh, people were shot and, and, and killed. But uh, when you look into this, you came in it with, with fresh eyes, not knowing this story. What did you think? Well, it was helpful to talk to a professor who's based at, um, you know, York College who studies studies this stuff um he you know made the point um that there were race riots all over the country at that time most of them in cities that were york size and not you know what was interest not interesting but what was rare about the um the riots in york was that they were they were fatal um two people died and almost 20 others were were shot Uh, and he his point was it's a miracle that more people did not die and you know the the fact that this led decades later to a criminal trial is certainly unique at the time the washington post talked to a professor and i'm assuming multiple people if they would have put this into made an entire story out of it that that was the only case that he was aware of that academics and historians who look at this stuff were aware of um where it had resulted in a criminal trial decades later. And there were, I think, 10 people who were brought up on charges, at least. And um, so so that also really made York unique. And, you know, just so that we, you know, you have the full story, uh, as Emily mentioned, there was a rookie police officer who, who was killed. And uh, there, I believe there were two African-Americans who were convicted in that case as, as well. And then the next night, remember the date, it was July 20th, 1969, because it was the date that uh, Neil Armstrong uh, stepped on the moon, man, the first uh, step on the moon by, by man. Uh, so York does have a, a history of this, as well as uh, some other cities. Right, and that's what I was going to say, is that as much as these events, I guess, in these there are certain characteristics or, or points in time that have, have drawn people's attention. The underlying factors and a lot of other things about the civil rights history, the history of racial tension in York, it's pretty universal. Um, and it's pretty representative of what is happening uh, and what was happening at that time um, around the rest of the country, even if people didn't die in every race riot, even if not every riot resulted in criminal charges against the mayor at the time decades later. So as sort of striking and dramatic as those aspects may be, again, the underlying factors and and sentiments in the community, those are relatively universal, which is why we decided to to do the episode focusing on New York because of these sort of higher profile incidents. What has, you know, the reason we're doing this program today, uh, the results of uh, what happened in Charlottesville, Virginia last weekend, York itself had a rally by white supremacists. Uh, it probably was in just within the last uh, 20 years or so now. Did you look into that? Yeah, that was in 0102, and it happened sort of in conjunction with the, the trial over the race riots from 69. And um, that actually, people at the time, some people at the time blamed uh, or pointed to the trial 
as dredging up this kind of sentiment. But if you look back at what was happening during the 90s leading up to that point, there was a lot of uh, neo-Nazi and other hate group activity. There was an uptick across the country. So there were plenty, there were many incidents. Um, there's there's a 250-year retrospective on civil rights history in York um, written by a gentleman named uh, Jim Kalish. Yes. And he, mm-hmm. you know, really just, it's, it's very straightforward, um, in a very straightforward manner, recount all of these incidents. And there were dozens and dozens of things that happened in York County and, and as with other communities around the country during the 90s as far as hate group activity. So this that was an outgrowth of, I mean, it was kind of a perfect storm, but it, it in no way was simply a result of this trial going on at the time. So what's changed over the years? I mean, we're going to be talking with Kim Bracey, the first African-American woman mayor of uh, the city of York in just a few minutes here. Obviously, uh, an African-American elected mayor of the city of York, uh, there has to have been some changes. Sure, certainly. And that's, you know, a pretty, um, you know, that's a a big demonstration of, of the change in sentiment. Uh, and I mean, I think that things have changed there's some kind of underlying sentiment there, uh, but then you see the way the community reacts, which was very vocal, um, very strong statements from local leaders. And I'm talking about the thing that happened with the former mayor. I'm talking about the thing that happened at York Tech, that this won't be tolerated in our community. Um, and that sort of response has, I think, grown more consistent and louder in the community over time. At least that's what it seemed in my research and um, by talking to people who study this stuff more closely. Emily Previty is WITF's Keystone Crossroads reporter. Emily, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks, Scott. Keystone Crossroads is a statewide initiative reporting on the challenges facing Pennsylvania cities. WITF is part of the collaboration with three other public media organizations. To learn more, visit WITF.org and click on Keystone Crossroads. It's supported regionally by the law firm of McNeese, Wallace, and Nurek. And uh, the Grapple podcast that uh, where you can hear all of Emily's reporting about uh, racial tensions in, in York uh, can be found at that website keystonecrossroads.org and or if you want to go to witf.org. Uh, Kim Bracey is the city of York's first African-American mayor. That in itself says there has been racial healing in York, but as we heard, York has been the scene of racist rallies just within the past 20 years. Mayor Bracey, welcome to the program. Good morning, Scott. Thank you so very much. So you were aware of Emily's reporting with uh, the Grapple podcast, and uh, you're well aware of of the history in York and and York County. What is different today? Um, Thank you. Uh, Wow. There's a lot of growth. There has been a lot of growth, but obviously, like any community, there's much more to be done. And, and the episodes that where I, I heard Emily speak about the, the Votech incident as well as 20 years ago, I mean, they're, they're still very recent in the minds of, of many. So we, we understand the need for uh, continued dialogue and, and conversation uh, around and this is a bit of a difficult subject to talk about. It's very important, and, and while as important it is, it's still very difficult for many to, to speak about. I just left a room full. I don't think you've ever visited our city hall, Scott, but you Yes, should. I have. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a, a, a pretty good-sized city council chambers, and the room was just packed. I don't know if there was a WITF person there or not, but there was media, of course, but there were community stakeholders, children, uh, mothers, you know, fathers, um, and, and then I think the most touching part for me was my d- diversity um, colleagues or, or staff throughout city government that has changed um, over the last 20 years, if you will. Uh, Mayor Brenner had to wrestle with uh, a, a lot when he came, when he was in office here, and, and a lot of that had to do with um, economics the hirings of individuals, the opportunities that were available to them. And and when I looked out and saw all of the, the, the spectrum that I saw of the, of the diversity that sat in those chairs, um, 
I, I got emotional, and I'm, I'm leading a press conference here about our denouncing of what took place uh, over the weekend in Virginia. Um, but it, it, it warmed my heart to see folks come together to say, we, we stand with you as our elected officials. It was to be a press conference with just our elected officials to say, we as your elective leadership denounce that. We're not tolerating that in our community, and we'll work with you. Um, we'll continue having conversations. We'll do all that we can to continue to advance the goodness of this community. Not being ignoring our history or ignoring what's happening right down the road or, or even in our community, but trying to overcome it with the, the conversation that makes those episodes so uh, what they they want that additional attention. We need to be able to teach our young people um, the difference between love and hate and work with all institutions that will help us with that. And and, and that's what I had downstairs uh, a few minutes ago, the faith community, the, the philanthropic community, there was business leaders. I mean, it, it, was, uh, it was very warming. And that's our York. That's our York that will say no to anyone that's trying to obtain a permit <laughs> to do anything that's not like what we want to see in our community. Yeah, that's, a, that's a good question, Mayor, because there have been a number of cities that uh, ha- in the last day or so that have denied uh, permits to groups like uh, you know the neo-Nazis, the Klan, that uh, wanted to, to, to march or hold rallies. Uh, you know, we mentioned it was uh, in the early 2000s that uh, this rally occurred in York that yes. became violent. So uh, you, legally, you can deny that permit? No, legally not, Scott, of course. Uh, we, but we will put it, we will work with individuals. We will, you know, we're not going to take on a, a knowingly take on a lawsuit for the city of York, but that group is not welcome here. And, and that much just goes out. And the love and the camaraderie, the what we have collectively comes out. Um, hopefully we become a community that, that doesn't even admit a sense that this is the type of place you want to come to have that sort of rally. The permit system obviously is a legal one, and your constitutional rights are just that. And we will try to uphold those. But we will have parameters in place. Uh, if we have to deal with that, and we're we're hoping, as, as every mayor in the country is, that that's not our community is not one that will be chosen, but because of what Mayor Brenner and the previous administration had to deal with, I mean, we have some things in order, we, some lessons have been learned, um, and and we'll we'll work through that. Um, but it, it's um, a, a difficult place to be at right now, one, having that conversation with our community, looking in the faces of our children and telling them hatred is not welcome, you are okay, we love you, and then sitting in this chair and realizing, you know, any minute now you could get that call that this permit application is here or you're, you're needed at the high school because people are chanting what they're chanting as they're right, walking through the hallways. Um, please come help us settle that. So um, <laughs> it's, it's interesting, and I suggest that I will do this again. So, <laughs> yeah. well, 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 Mayor, you know, with some of these cities, you know, Charlottesville, you know, I, I, I've been thinking over the past few days, I don't know whether you've ever visited Charlottesville, Virginia or not, uh, but Charlottesville is a beautiful city. Uh, yeah, just absolutely beautiful, gorgeous with the University of Virginia, such a history. It's not the kind of place that you would think of where this group would, uh, these group of people would choose to rally. Of course, they did that because of uh, the Robert E. Lee statue and some of uh, the uh, decisions made by the city council in, right. in Charlottesville. But when you hear, knowing York's history, and again, it's not something that uh, obviously you want people to talk about a whole lot because it is history, but when you hear stories like what happened at Votech the day after uh, the election, do you think to yourself, oh, no, not here. Please, not here. Indeed, and and, and that's the high school I was referring to. I, I, I went to the school um, to offer my support and what I could do to help the administration even deal with this on that very day. 
we had children who live in the city attend med school, so they're my kids. Um, so, yeah, it, it, the thought is, yeah, it's not here, not here. What else can we do? How can we continue this? Because we we are very clear, and, and everyone's speaking about it, um, we we have wrestled with and confronted some complicated racial legacy. We have that racial legacy in our city, and it's not always it's not a pleasant one. We've seen firsthand the challenges of of those actions, and but we also seen some of the, the the transformative benefits that have come from that. Those Scott, I mean, the communication that's happening, the the community that we have now. Again, the spectrum that was in my press conference was every shade of the rainbow that's imaginable, every denomination that I didn't know, probably, um, and, and, and gender of individuals. Uh, so we're just hopeful that our combined efforts have, have put us on a path towards um, reconciliation that that you know, will help us vote against some of the uglies. I mean, th- this is a choice, and we all know that. This is a choice um, that these people have taken on. And our country cannot, in, in our, our, our cities, if you will, can't be as good as they are if we um, don't really put it, it, it in its place. This is not an acceptable behavior. The city of York won't stand for bigotry, hatred, and, and violence against others and just, just because this is what you feel like you need to do. We will be prepared if and when uh, we have to confront that issue, Scott. And it's not one I, I want to think about, but it's not one I can just ignore that won't happen. So um, we feel good about our city. We love the direction it's going in. We love the, the diversity we have We have in our workforce. And there's still room to do better, and we know that. And uh, with the number of groups that we have and organizations working alongside elected officials, um, that have spoken out because not everyone has. Um, we we're, we are feeling great about how we could continue to improve our community. So, York Mayor Kim Brace, it's always uh, nice to talk to you. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Scott. Have a good day. You too. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. So how will history judge the time we're living through right now? Today's young people will learn from what they've, they've seen today. But what about the past and why is there still racism in this country? Activist Nick Myron will teach a workshop for teachers starting in September called, called Teachers Are Teaching Anti-Racism. Mr. Myron, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Scott. Also joining us is Kevin Ressler. He's working to organize the course and is co-founder of the Lancaster Action Now Coalition. Mr. Ressler, welcome to the show. Hello, Kevin. You there? I hope that's uh, we'll we'll see if we can get Kevin on the line. Uh, Hopefully Kevin's not listening to the radio where there is a delay, but uh, we'll try to get Kevin on the line. But uh, Nick, in the meantime, let's talk about this. How how did this course come about? It actually came about um, several months ago. uh, I had led a a six-week program um, looking at whiteness, uh, specifically aimed uh, at whiteness. And from that, uh, there was some interest in the community community. which I've been pretty active uh, to, to try and do more, uh, especially targeting folks in different sectors. Um, so somebody was interested in doing one in education, so we started talking about how we can make it happen, and uh, that's kind of the root of it. Kevin, are you there? Yes, I'm oh, here. Can okay. you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you now. Okay, we, we had the okay. long, wrong line there, Kevin. So uh, <laughs> I'll ask you the same question. Kevin, you've been on the show before, and uh, as co-founder of Lancaster Action, now Coalition, talk about this course and why it's important. Yeah, you know, the Lancaster Action Now Coalition is something that uh, Jamie Beth Schindler and I founded shortly after the Donald Trump election. We were uh, concerned that individuals were coming forth sort of for these community vigils, but not feeling like they had a pathway to doing something active. So uh, we wanted to create a place where we would be able to do a variety of activities. And so we've held a health forum for low-income and uh, families, knowing what 
they would have available if the ECA was repealed. Here we're taking a look and seeing how can we make sure that the way that we tell history is a more truthful way than the one that allows people to believe that in any way Nazism is an acceptable course of action or in any way that the slavery that was undergirding the Civil War was somehow a more preferable society. So, Nick, you actually will be teaching the course. And when I looked at um, the, the website that's that's talking about uh, uh, the course, and it is for teachers, I want to point this out, that it is for teachers and how to teach about uh, racism. What is missing? Because you say right on the website that this is something that is missing in, in schools. I think what's missing often is is talk about racism and white supremacy itself. Uh, the, the truth of our nation is that it, its foundation is white supremacist. Um, simply look at our founders; uh, many of them were slave owners, uh, and it—it's it, kind of where our country came from. So when we don't talk about racism and white supremacy, what we end up doing is perpetuating it. Uh, we often look at incidents like Charlottesville and the overt um, individualized acts of hate that that those events are about, and mo- many of us rightfully condemn that. What we don't want to talk about is the ways that white supremacy has been embedded deeply into our institutions, our churches, our homes, um, and especially our schools. And, and that often takes, takes a form of silence. So we don't talk about the role racism plays in identity shaping. We don't talk about the ways that white supremacy has shaped our institutions, uh, shaped our policies and procedures, our laws, and the way that we govern and, and live together, actually. So I, I, I'm curious, though, uh, you know, I'm sure that uh, that the civil rights era, for example, in the 1960s, or maybe even going back further, is something that uh, in history courses is touched on. Certainly, Dr. Martin Luther King. Uh, but beyond that, now, you, you, you sound like you want to go back to, uh, you know, the founding founders, uh, founding uh, founding fathers, as you say. So what form does that course take? If, if I, if, this is Kevin, if I can um, add on to that sure. a little bit here, it's not just uh, the what's being taught, it's how it's being taught. So for instance, as a, I'm a, you know, I'm biracial, so I'm, I'm a black American. When I'm sitting in class in, in elementary school, I remember that it didn't feel like I was the person being talked to. Right. So when we tell the story about Christopher Columbus finding America, you know, there were people already here. So if you're, if you have indigenous heritage, the way that we teach that course is very clearly not being told to you. It's not your story. You're being allowed into the Eurocentric story. If you are a black American, if you are Asian American, and today we're able to see diversity in more than just race. So if you are not, uh, you know, heteronormative, if, if you're not a Christian, if you're not all of these various things, you know, the stories and the way we tell them in schools presume that the kid sitting in that class is a white male. And that dates all the way back to, as Nick was pointing out, our founding fathers, where they said all men are created equal, but all men actually only men meant white land-owning males. I want to bring up a criticism that I have heard uh, because there has been so much talk. And I mean, even over the last few days, President Trump brought it up when he talked about, uh, you know, what's next, uh, bringing down statues of Washington and and Jefferson uh, that, you know, obviously those two men and I, I think. I, I, I think it was a majority of uh, the founding fathers, you know, signed the Declaration of Independence and uh, uh, the, mm-hmm. at the Constitutional Convention were slave owners, um, that there are those who are concerned that, uh, you know, 200 years later, more than 200 years later, that that's how they will be identified as slave owners and the achievements that they had otherwise in uh, founding the country will get lost because younger people hearing that will say, oh, well, they were bad people because they were slave owners. How do you respond to that? Um, yeah, I think one of the, one of the ways I, I respond to that is by simply saying, why are we distinguishing between the two? They were slave owners. That necessarily impacted them, their sense of self, the way that they uh, wrote, the language that they used, um, the, the Constitution itself, the Declaration of Independence, that all came from the perspective of somebody who believed it was okay to own people. So we're not, we're not tarnishing their legacy. We're bringing a fuller history, a fuller understanding of who these people actually were.
Mm. When you say you're not tarnishing their history, how do you make that? Uh, how do you make that distinction? I think it's telling the truth. I mean, yeah. you know, we tell this story about George Washington cutting down a cherry tree and saying, <laughs> "I could not tell a lie," and then we turn around and, our, and that, that story itself is is apocryphal. Yeah. But then we also then go ahead and say it's okay to talk about George Washington's fight for the revolution and the freedom of people. And, oh, by the way, a massive amount of the humans who are there are not going to be considered people. Um, I mean, that's we, we're creating gods of these people from 200 years ago. And instead of telling more stories about those who have helped us progress to here, I think part of what happens then is that you have people telling more of the fictional myths of these individuals than the realities and the flaws that they had. We do better telling the fact that these were imperfect people trying to do well than we do trying to tell them as if they were perfect people who did everything right. Because then we no longer see ourselves as having accessibility to making change. We have a Congress right now that refuses to do things to advance, you know, the rights and, and, and opportunities of citizens, in part, I think, because they look back at these mythical congressmen from the past and don't realize they're sitting in the same seats of power with the same opportunities to make real change for their citizens. Mm -hmm. And let's talk a little bit more about history. And, uh, you know, Nick, I think you touched on this very early on, uh, that I think a lot of people's eyes have been opened here in the last few days uh, since Charlottesville when we have neo-Nazis walking down the streets of an American city with the Nazi flag that this country and a lot of others fought against in, in World War II, that maybe, you know, that it, it, it just shocks a lot of people that there are people in this country who would endorse that or at least not condemn it when they probably had ancestors or certainly no people who died in that war fighting against Nazism. Yeah, hate, hate needs a home. Um, and so, well, I can tell you a, a quick story. Student teaching, uh, I was with sixth graders, social study classroom. The cooperating teacher was doing a lesson on uh, the Arab area, Middle East, and a student asked, why they, and the student was referring to uh, people of Arab descent, why they value, or why are they terrorists, is what the student said. And the teacher responded, that's what they value. So that is not a person that we would look to and say she's a hateful, um, Nazi-saluting, uh, hood-wearing person. It's a teacher who's trying to do her best in a classroom. However, the message that that sends, and the message that society sends in general, especially when we put people like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and as Kevin was saying, when we idolize people and put them on pedestals, we are creating a society that welcomes the hood-wearing, torch-carrying um, people in, that were in Charlottesville. Uh, gentlemen, we only have a few minutes left, or actually a few seconds left, I should say. Uh, so when is, when, uh, you know, what's the schedule for, uh, for the course, and how can teachers get involved? The course starts uh, September 18th. It's going to run every other Monday night uh, from 6 until 9 p.m., and there is an email uh, that uh, folks can can send uh, or uh, folks can email for for information or to register. Um, Kevin, do you have that email address? Hey, I'll, I'll put it oh. on our website because we are almost out of time. Oh, Nick wonderful. Nick Myron and uh, Kevin Russell, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for having us. Appreciate it. Coming up tomorrow, we'll talk about the eclipse. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health Spine Institute, offering a complete range of services to diagnose and treat your spine condition. More information is available at pinnaclehealth.org/spine.